Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com. Build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. The Peter Schiff Show. It's Friday and the markets had a very strong day today. In fact, we finished a uh, up week on an up note. In fact, the sectors that did the best today were the ones that had been beaten down the most. So you saw a lot of strength today in the financials, in the small cap companies, Russell 2000. The energy stocks were strong despite oil prices going down again. In fact, I think West Texas was trading with an 18 handle uh, in the spot market, not nearly as weak in the outer months, but for immediate delivery, uh, you really have a lot of pressure on oil prices, but the oil stocks did well. The stocks that did poorly today were the ones that everybody had been buying. I mean, look at Netflix, uh, which yesterday hit a new record high along with Amazon, both those stocks down today. Uh, but the NASDAQ was still positive, uh, but not nearly as much as the broader markets because it was now weighed down uh, by these tech stocks that had been uh, propping it up. I think part of the rally uh, or a catalyst was some optimism that started yesterday over maybe a Gilead has got some kind of a coronavirus cure. Uh, but also, I just think there's some short covering. And also, you have some people trying to pick bottoms. You know, they think maybe the, the bear market is over. And so they're buying down some of the stocks that have been beaten up the most. So they're you know buying some of the financials or some of these small cap companies. But I still am doubting this rally. I don't think the bear market is over. I mean, I don't think the bear market ends with stocks like Netflix and Amazon making new all-time record highs. I still think uh, those stocks have to have some type of comeuppance. I think they have to take those out and shoot them. So I am looking for another sell-off in, uh, in the broad markets. Uh, I think the only thing that the markets have going for it is the Fed. I mean, obviously, a lot of people think that's it. That's all they need. As long as you got the Fed on your side and they're going to keep on printing money, which they're going to do, and they're going to print more and more of it, uh, people are going to make a bet and they're going to bet on the Fed by, by buying stocks. What they should be doing is buying gold and buying gold stocks. Gold and gold stocks were also weak today. Uh, gold stocks had been very strong. In fact, many of the big gold stocks had made 52-week highs uh, yesterday. And gold was off today, uh, maybe 30 bucks or so. 
uh, but still very, very strong. And gold stocks had a good week. And in fact, I think yesterday, one of the big uh, brokerage firms, I forget which one, actually reduced, I think, Newmont and Barrick uh, from a buy uh, to, a, to a hold, which is pretty much the equivalent of a sell. And they, they were thinking that gold had already had a big run and that it was time to take profits in these stocks. And I think, to me, that's still a bullish indication that you have so many people on Wall Street looking at gold stocks and thinking that the run is over. I mean, first of all, I doubt many of their clients actually bought any of these stocks. I don't know, you know how, how big an impact that buy recommendation even had because I doubt they were really buying the gold stocks. But to think that the run is over, when if you look at where gold stocks are in relation to where they even started the year, I mean, most gold stocks are still down on the year, not even up, even though the price of gold is up. But if you take a step back and you look at where gold stocks were five years ago, 10 years ago, to think that this is it, that the bull market is over, it's barely begun for people to say, hey, it's time to get out. You know, the gold rally is over, right? I mean, these are people who really have no clue what's going on in the gold market, trying to convince people that the gold rally is over when the fundamentals have never been better. I mean, it's not like the Fed's about to stop printing money. No, they're going to print more than ever before. In fact, because... They have printed so much money so quickly because the balance sheet has exploded. And because of all these new programs that are on deck, not only the ones that have already uh, been enacted, but the programs that are on deck, uh, they're going to be printing money like crazy. Uh, so you have the most bullish environment you could imagine uh, for the mining sector, uh, yet they're saying we should sell these stocks. And those same firms, oh, they'll put buy recommendations on Netflix and they'll put buy recommendations uh, on Amazon, I mean, and in theory, the reason that they think you should buy these stocks is because the rest of the economy is imploding and everybody is staying at home and watching Netflix and shopping on Amazon. Well, if that's true and the rest of the economy is imploding, well, then doesn't that mean the Fed's going to keep printing? Doesn't that mean the deficits are going to be bigger and bigger if nobody is going back to work, if everybody is, you know, hunkered down uh, watching Netflix? So why wouldn't that be an even better environment for gold stocks? Uh, than it would for uh, these stocks, which are already so overpriced anyway and could easily decline. But it just shows you the bias that Wall Street has against gold stocks because they have such a small position to begin with. And maybe a lot of it, too, is that there's not a lot of banking deals in the mining sector, right? They're not, and there hasn't been. Now, I think that's going to change. I think over the next several years, as the price of gold really, really goes up, then you're going to see a lot of these mining companies uh, entering the capital markets looking for financing. I mean, because it's been such a long dry spell and such a big bear market, uh, there hasn't been a lot of uh, activity, hasn't been a lot of uh, uh, capital raising or mergers and acquisitions, not enough to excite Wall Street to the point where they want to actually cover mining stocks and have analysts put buy recommendations on them so they can win uh, some of these banking deals. But that's all going to happen. Once Wall Street starts figuring out that they can make a lot of money in the mining sector because the mines are now very profitable and looking for capital, all of a sudden they're going to like the stocks because they're going to have some kind of vested interest in these stocks because by liking them, well, they'll be more apt to win the banking uh, deal because you're not going to, if you're looking to raise money, you want you want an investment bank that has a positive outlook on your company that's going to have a buy rating on your stock. That's kind of how it works on Wall Street. Everybody wants to scratch everybody else's back. So I do think 
uh, that Wall Street is going to start speaking more positively about these stocks. But I think the prices are going to be much, much higher, uh, both for the bullion and for the stocks. But let me uh, go back and talk about some of the economic data uh, that came out again. More weak economic data. Of course, everybody is expecting weak data, so it's not a surprise. Uh, but generally, the data that we get ends up being even weaker uh, than is expected. So yesterday, we got housing starts. And so we got the March number. So that's the beginning of the coronavirus effect, although I think the April number is going to be even worse than the March number. And the prior number, which was February, was revised down from 1.599 million starts to 1.564. So a bit of a downward revision. They were looking for 1.35 million for uh, March. And instead, we got 1.216. So a pretty big miss there on housing starts. Now, the permits uh, was a big decline from the prior month. We got 145.2. Uh, and in March, we got 135.3, which was better than the 1.3 million they were looking for. But, you know, I have a feeling that a lot of the developers who got permits, I don't think they're going to follow through. I think they're going to, you know, take another look at this. They're going to, you know, put pencil to paper again, and they're not going to end up building. With all these banks now, not only are they, you know, ratcheting up the requirements to get a mortgage. But now a lot of these banks are just backing off uh, from the home equity loans. They're not even making loans collateralized by real estate. So the whole finance aspect of real estate purchases and real estate is imploding. So I think that these developers are a bit optimistic filing for these permits because the permit itself doesn't obligate the developer to do anything, right? It just means you have to have the permit to build, but just because you have a permit, doesn't mean that you're going to build. And I think that's what's going to happen. So I think people are going to be uh, disappointed in this. We also got the uh, Philly Fed numbers. Uh, that number, uh, the prior number for March uh, was minus 12.7, a very, very bad number. They were looking for it to get to minus 30. And instead, we got minus 56.6. I mean, that's a horrific number. Uh, for Philly Fed business outlook. We did get the jobless claims, right? That's become the big number now. Everybody's like, how many jobs, how many millions and millions of jobs are going to be lost? Last week, remember, we lost 6.615 million, which was a slight upward revision to the original 6.606 uh, million. Uh, and it was a bit of an improvement. Only 5,245,000 people lost their job week. Uh, and that brings the total now that have been lost during the beginning of this depression uh, to more than all of the jobs that were created from the beginning of the 2009 recovery until a month ago. We have now lost more jobs uh, than we created during that time. So lots of people are losing their jobs. We got the Fed's balance sheet that came out yesterday. In fact, it was hours late. I mean, I don't know. I guess the Fed was trying to do some last minute calculating because they normally come out with the numbers right at 4.30. And it didn't happen for another few hours after that. I remember I kept checking uh, you know, online to see when I would get the number. And I finally, finally saw the number. Uh, and the balance sheet was only up 284.7 billion. I say only, that's still a tremendous amount for the balance sheet to grow in a week. Remember, QE3 was 80 billion a month. And we just did 284.7 billion 
in a week, right? So now the Fed's balance sheet is $6 trillion, $368 billion, right? I mean, we're going to be at $7 trillion here in another week or two. I mean, we are just adding these numbers like crazy. And nobody is considering how is the Fed ever going to shrink this balance sheet, right? I mean, maybe people have decided they're never going to shrink it. But then what does that mean? Because either the Fed has to shrink the balance sheet at some point, which is going to be very, very disruptive to the economy, much more disruptive than when they tried to shrink the balance sheet before, which eventually blew up. Remember, the Fed had to call off quantitative tightening uh, before the coronavirus came around. They had already started cutting interest rates before the coronavirus. So it's not like the Fed was able to keep shrinking the balance sheet and keep raising interest rates. And it had to abort that process because of the coronavirus. They had to abort the process before anybody even heard of the coronavirus. So it was already imploding, right? The bubble was already deflating before this pin, this other pin came and put another hole in it. So if we couldn't unwind the four and a half trillion dollar balance sheet, if we couldn't normalize interest rates with the debt levels that existed before the coronavirus, think about how much more difficult, if not completely impossible, that process is going to be after the coronavirus. So nobody is asking, what is the implications of a balance sheet that is so enormous that it would be so disruptive to shrink or because it's so enormous and can't be shrunk? What does that mean about future inflation and the value of the dollar and all this bad stuff? Nobody is even asking these questions. Everybody still just thinks, oh, you know, when the coronavirus is cured and we all go back to normal, everything will be fine. And they're ignoring not only all of the damage that is being done in the interim, right? All of the debt that we're accumulating between the beginning of the coronavirus and the time that it is fine, right? Because all that debt is still here. Even if we cure the coronavirus, we don't cure that. All of the money that we all have to borrow, all the money that the Fed is printing to get us from here to the cure, that's still there. We still have to deal with that problem long after the coronavirus problem is over, if it is in fact over, which is just is an optimistic assumption. And also, you know, I believe too, to the extent that we do, you know, all go back to work, right? I think the government is going to come up with new rules and regulations for businesses uh, to keep their employees safe, to keep their customers safe, right? Just like, you know, when 9-11 happened and we had all kinds of new rules, lots of new security at buildings and at airports. I think the government's going to come in with all kinds of mandates on businesses that not only deal with the public, but just for their employees, which is going to drive up the cost of staying in business. It's going to make operating a business more expensive. It's going to make hiring people more expensive. So all of our businesses are going to be less productive and less efficient when they get started back up again. And of course, they're going to start back up into a recession because we were going into recession anyway. So it's not like all of a sudden we're going to go back to this booming economy. We're going to go back to a bubble. All we can do is recover from a depression to a recession, which technically means that you're still in a depression. But people still haven't come to terms uh, with that. And, you know, we got the leading economic indicators came out today. Uh, this was for March. So the February number was initially reported at a positive 0.1. They actually revised that down to minus 0.2. So this is February. This is before anybody was worried about coronavirus. Well, the March number 
uh, was supposed to be down 7%. And it was actually not quite that bad, down 6.7%. But still, I think that's the, the, the biggest drop in like 60 years or something like that in the leading economic indicators. But, you know, one of the best leading economic indicators, of course, is the fact that the government has already blown through the entire $350 billion that was allocated for the small business loans, the Paycheck Protection Plan, right? They're already out of money. They were so overwhelmed in just a couple of days by businesses wanting this money. Now, of course, why it would surprise anybody uh, that when the government is giving away money that people you know, lined up to get it. But the Republicans are dying uh, to get some more, right? They're trying to get another $250 billion into this program that they think is so great. And the Democrats are holding it up because they want to throw on some more pork onto the Republican pork. I mean, I think it's very ironic that the Republicans are upset at the Democrats because the Democrats want to screw up their socialist bill by adding more socialist programs on their own. I mean, it's like, it's so... Uh, hypocritical. I mean, once you've decided that you're going to deficit spend all this money, then how do you deny the Democrats? Well, they just want to spend even more. I mean, if this if spending this money is good and, and borrowing and printing all this money is good, why isn't borrowing and printing even more bad? I mean, it's hard to uh, be against uh, the deficit spending that the Democrats want to do, but then be in favor of the deficit spending that you want to do. So I have a feeling that at some point, the Republicans are going to give on this. Uh, and I think that we're going to end up getting uh, the the uh, second you know installment of these small business loans. But I think that there's going to be additional money made available to the state governments, the local governments, uh, the hospitals, whatever it is that the Democrats want. They're going to get a good chunk of that because, you know, the, the Republicans want uh, to uh, to give money to their constituents. And so the Democrats are going to get be able to give money to theirs. But I want to talk again a little bit more about this, this uh, plan, this paycheck protection, these loans to small businesses. Because again, just like every government program, this one is going to backfire. I believe that because of these small business loans, more small businesses will end up failing because of the loans than what would have been the case if there were no loans. And I think more employees of these businesses will end up being permanently unemployed from those businesses than would otherwise have been the case had the government not made the loans. And I think the vast majority of these loans are never going to be repaid because I believe that the businesses that might have otherwise repaid them will go out of business. And one of the main reasons they will go out of business is because of the loans. So let me like go through the numbers and really uh, you know you know uh, spell this out. Um, so let's let's take a restaurant, right? Because I think a restaurant is a typical business that was really hard hit uh, by uh, COVID nineteen, and is a type of business uh, that you know is you know going to be in need of these loans, right? So let's say I own a restaurant, and I got a successful restaurant, and let's say I'm 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 doing. Um, Six million dollars a year in in in, in sales, right? It's my customers, so that's about five hundred thousand a month, which is probably a pretty good restaurant. Five hundred thousand dollars a month in meals, right? I'm doing maybe I got 
I'm serving dinners, I'm serving lunches, you know, maybe I'm open, you know, six, seven days a week, whatever it is. I got a bunch of shifts and it's like, you know, but the numbers don't even matter. I mean, even if the, if, if you, if you cut the numbers in half, it's the percentages that matter, not the absolute numbers, but I just want to talk about this $500,000 a month. And I, I know that restaurants in general are pretty low margin businesses because the costs are pretty high. You know, you've got the labor costs, you got your food costs and all that. And, uh, and, and, uh, and your rent and stuff like that. So the margins aren't that big. And I, so I, I just did a little research online and it seems to me that a typical, um, a business does about 5% a restaurant. The owner of the restaurant makes about 5% of the total revenue, which would mean in my example, where a guy's doing a half a million a month in sales, the owner's making $300,000 a year running that restaurant. He's probably working hard, you know, again, working six days a week, you know, working nights, you know, and he's making 300,000 running this restaurant, his labor costs. Right. And I just looked online and it, it seems like about 30% is about the average. So about 30% of your sales go to your labor costs, you know, your waiters, your bus boys, your, uh, you know, the, the, the receptionist or the, you know, the, the hostess or host, whatever, you know, all the people that you're paying, uh, that's about 30% of your total, uh, of your total revenue. Now, the way these small business loans work, you can get a loan for two and a half times your monthly, uh, payroll costs. Excludes any monthly payments that would annualize to over a hundred thousand a year. So if you have any employees on payroll that are making more than a hundred thousand, you're not going to get their full uh, two and a half months in the loan. You're going to get capped out at a hundred and that includes the money you pay yourself. So if you're owning the restaurant yourself and your profit is your salary and you're making a $300,000 year salary, well, you know, you could borrow enough to cover a hundred thousand of it for the, you know, two and a half months. Based on that calculation, if you're doing five hundred thousand a month in uh, in sales, and thirty percent of that is um, your payroll, if you multiply that by two and a half, that's that's some um, three hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars that you can borrow, and then you tack on about twenty thousand for what you can borrow for your own money. That's part of your profits, and you're almost at four hundred grand. So let's just say that a restaurant that is doing five hundred thousand a month. In, in sales, and the owner of that restaurant is making $300,000 a year, he can borrow $400,000 right now from the government. Now, the loans are non-recourse to the government, and they are uh, there's no security. The only uh, contingency is that if you don't use the loans for the allowable purpose, they theoretically can come after you for fraud if you commit fraud, and there are penalties there right? If you commit fraud, but if you don't commit fraud, if you use the money the way you're allowed to use it, then there's no fraud. And if the business goes out of business, then, you know, the government doesn't get any of the money. Now, the, the idea here is that the, the loans would be forgiven if you don't fire your workers, right? If you keep all your workers on payroll and you don't cut their pay, then uh, if you do that for a certain amount of time, I think it's eight weeks or whatever with the money or after you get the money. If you keep the employees on the payroll and you keep paying them, uh, then you won't have to repay the money. Well, here is the problem, right? First of all, let's say I got a restaurant, right? Nobody's coming to my restaurant. Nobody is using my restaurant. I don't even need 
to have my employees, right? Because I don't, I'm not doing much business. I don't need all these employees. Meanwhile, my employees are now on unemployment, making more money, not working than they made when I was paying them. So A, what's the point of paying them when they're making more money and not having to work, right? So why would I even use that money to pay my employees? And my employees would be pissed if they made the, if, you know, they, they, they said I had to work uh, or they had to work when they're making more money, not working. And plus you don't even need them. What are they going to do? Nobody's coming to your restaurant anyway. Uh, so right away, you're not going to hire, you know, you're not going to give the money to the workers. You're just going to put the money in the bank. And I think even the way the bill is written, you have until June 30th to hire your people back. So you can still get your money, you can fire them. And then if you hire them back by June 30th, and then you keep them on payroll, right? Uh, you, you, you won't have to pay the loans back. But here's the problem here, right? First of all, nobody knows what July 1st is going to be like as far as demand for restaurants. I mean, does anybody really believe that restaurants are going to be back up to 100% that on July 1st, everybody's going to be going to restaurants as often as they were before the coronavirus? I mean, not even a chance. I mean, first of all, they may not even be opened up. Who the hell knows, right? But even if it's okay, maybe they have rules for how crowded the restaurants can be. Like, I mean, how much, how many people can be in the restaurant, right? How many at one time or how far away from each other? They have to sit or do they have to wear masks? I mean, who wants to even go to a restaurant if they have to wear a mask? I mean, how are you eating through a mask anyway? I mean, my guess is that when we return to whatever it is we're going to return to, that the demand for restaurants is going to collapse. I mean, I would be shocked if restaurants were doing 50% of the business that they were doing before Corona after Corona. I, I doubt that they're going to do that much business. But let's say they did, right? So let's say in my example, this guy was doing $500,000 uh, a month in revenue before coronavirus. Let's say July 1st comes back and people are allowed to go to restaurants with some restrictions. But let's say now, instead of doing $500,000, I'm doing $250,000 a month. But I have to keep all my workers if I don't want to repay that loan. Well, if I have to keep all my workers and I was given my, and my, my, my overhead or my salary was 30% of my sales, well, now my salary is 60% of sales. How am I going to survive if my labor costs are now 60% of my sales and my profit margin was only 5%, how am I going to make any money? I still got to pay my rent. I still got to pay for all the other marginal costs. I don't think there's any way a restaurant with a 50% decline in revenues, or maybe more, maybe a 60 or 70% decline in revenues, how are they going to survive if they can't cut their payroll costs? In fact, the only way most of these restaurants are going to be able to stay in business is if they make significant reductions to their staff, right? They have to cut back on the number of workers. But here's the problem. If they do that, now they got to repay these loans. Well, wait a minute. You got a guy who needed the money to borrow a loan, right? He was making 300000 a year uh, running a restaurant. Now, maybe with the sales cut in half, right, and he reduces his overhead, maybe he's not making 300000 a year anymore. Maybe he's making 150000 a year. How's he going to pay back a $400,000 loan over the next couple of years? There's no way he's going to do it. It's impossible. So here's the, the, the reality of the situation.
Anyone who borrows that money, any small business who borrows that money, if they try to do what the government wants them to do, they're going to go out of business eventually and they're going to have to fire anybody because they're, they're, they're not going to be able to stay in business with a bloated payroll. On the other hand, if they reduce their payroll, they now have a massive loan that they have to pay back. They wouldn't have had that loan to pay back had they never borrowed the money in the first place. So the government is going to take these businesses that are barely surviving and load them up with even more debt. So now they're dead for sure. And, you know, first of all, you know, a lot of restaurants go bankrupt anyway. I mean, how many restaurants that were around before the coronavirus probably would have gone bankrupt anyway, because that's what happens with restaurants. That's the nature of the business. They start up and they fail. They start up and they fail. Well, now a lot of the ones that were going to fail anyway are going to be able to borrow this money. Now, what is the restaurateur going to do, right? Well, like, what would I do, right? If I was running a restaurant, that restaurant where I was doing, you know, 300000 in income for myself, uh, how would I borrow this money and, and, and you know, to do, do, the, do what's in my best interest? People are going to act rationally in their own self-interest, especially people that are smart enough to, to operate a business. So this is what I would do. And I'm sure this is what everybody else is going to do. So I'd get my $400,000 and I'd put it in the bank. I would not rehire any of the workers except the ones that I absolutely needed in order to operate on a reduced scale. I bring a few people back, right? Pay them. Maybe I start, you know, doing a little bit more takeout. I would keep paying myself. You're allowed to pay yourself, you know, up to a hundred grand, right? That's the most salary you could take with, with the money that you borrow. You could pay yourself a hundred grand. And if my wife didn't work for me, I'd hire her. And now she can get a hundred grand, right? That's totally allowable because that's that you're allowed to use the money to pay uh, payroll expenses, right? Uh, it's just that if you reduce your payroll to fewer people, it becomes a loan and not a grant. But again, I don't care. I'm not paying back the money, right? I got the money. I'm paying myself the hundred thousand dollars a year salary. I'm paying my wife a hundred thousand dollars a year salary. That's two hundred thousand of the four hundred grand. Now, the other money, I'm going to pay other employees that I need to operate on a smaller scale because I'm still generating some revenue. You're allowed to use the money to pay your rent. So I can pay my landlord for a while while I'm operating on a reduced scale. But at some point, I'm going to burn through that loan money. And at the point where my revenues are no longer enough to continue to pay myself and my wife or whatever, I'm just going to shut down. I'm going to close down the business. I would have used all the money for payroll and for rent. I barely would have rehired any of my workers. They're going to remain unemployed and the government's not going to get a nickel back because I didn't commit fraud. I used all of the money for its intended purpose. And then I went out of business when I ran out of that money. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. 
The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But if I was never able to borrow the money, then, all right, you know, maybe I would have just made all of the necessary reductions in my staff uh, and been able to to stay in business. But because I, I got this big loan and now I was able to put a bunch of money in my pocket, well, now I'm just going to go out of business. And of course, you know, if you think about it, you know, it makes sense if you're a restaurateur, you know, you can make yourself, you know, a couple hundred two three hundred thousand dollars off these government loans um, and then take a vacation for a year or two. Right. Because probably you're not going to work that hard. Right. Paying yourself the salary because you're not going to have nearly as much work to do, uh, you know, during this time period. Plus, you don't even know. I mean, who the hell knows? I mean, even if we go back. Uh, to eating out, what if the virus has a second wave and the fall comes and all of a sudden all the restaurants are ordered close again? I mean, it's such a risky business to operate right now, to even try to run a restaurant. It makes a lot more sense to just max out your loans, you know, milk it for all you can, and then shut down your business uh, and take a vacation. And maybe in a year or two, you just open up another restaurant. Right. When all this is behind us, when maybe you think we're not in a recession anymore, we've got a vaccine for the coronavirus or a cure or something like that, when it's a better environment. But it is a terrible environment. It is a very uh, risky environment to operate a restaurant, especially if you have to operate it with a huge loan that you didn't have. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're in a weak financial position before the coronavirus. And now the government enables you to borrow a whole bunch more money. And now you have all this debt. And now they're trying to force you to maintain a bloated workforce at the same time. It is impossible. So again, this is going to be another example of where this program completely backfires. And by the way, a lot of people aren't even going to worry about, you know, the appearance of committing fraud because you know what? Who's going to know? You know how much money they're loaning out in such a short period of time? I mean, nobody's going to be able to ferret out who actually needs the money and who didn't need the money and who just immediately put all the money in their own pockets. And, you know, since you're allowed to pay rent, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people will make deals with their landlords. Hey, I'll pay you this rent. And then, you know, you know, reimburse me or who knows, there's going to be so much fraud involved. Whenever the government has a pile of money that it's giving away, there's always going to be a lot of fraud. And the problem is this is so much money so soon, there is no way. And it's going to be politically uh, difficult to try to go after people after all is, you know, oh, these are small businessmen, they're struggling. And now you're trying to go after them for this money. I mean, you're heartless, you're cruel, right? So look, this, this is a, a giant uh, disaster. They all love this plan. Uh, but, you know, it, it is fraught with moral hazard and it is going to produce the opposite of its intended effect, which again is how government regulations always, always work or any government program works. Anyway, I want to finish up this podcast by answering some of the questions that people have uh, posted in the Super Chat. Not the ones that are being asked today, right? If you're asking a question right now or you're paying some money, I'm not going to get to it today. I could get to it next week, but I have a list of questions. I'm going to go through them now and answer them, as I said I would. So first one comes from Colton Hennessy, and he is asking, is it possible to ever pay off the debt 
uh, the national debt and the interest. Well, no, I mean, we can't repay the debt, right? I mean, not, it's in fact, most people agree that we never repay the debt, right? The debt's just going to get bigger and bigger forever. But to me, you see, that doesn't make any sense, right? How can you borrow money and never have to pay it back? Because think of that, think about that from the perspective of the lender. If we're basically saying we're going to borrow money and never pay it back, then the lenders are saying, well, we're going to loan money and we're never going to get it back. Now, the idea is, well, you will get it back because we're going to borrow it from somebody else. So the plan for the national debt is to never pay it back, but to pay everybody back by borrowing more money from the next guy, right? So we're going to pay back the people who loaned us money yesterday by buying more money, by borrowing more money tomorrow. In other words, it's a giant Ponzi scheme, right? That's the whole plan. The reason that we never have to pay the money back is because we're running a Ponzi scheme. But the problem with Ponzi schemes is you cannot run them indefinitely. Now, the government can run a Ponzi scheme longer than a private citizen, right? Bernie Madoff ran his for a long time. They usually blow up at some point. Uh, and the government doesn't rep repeal the laws of economics. The government Ponzi scheme will end. And then when it ends, the government has two choices, default or inflate. And the consequences are pretty much the same, right? Either you get less money back or you get all your money back, but you can buy less with it, right? Either you lose your money or you lose your purchasing power. But the one thing that will never happen is the debt will be paid off honestly because that's impossible. But what's crazy is that so many people are okay with the idea that we never have to pay it back. Well, if a loan never has to be paid back, then it's not a loan. That is what makes a loan a loan the idea that it has to be repaid. If it's never going to be repaid, then it's not a loan. We're stealing the money. The only question is, how much longer can we get away with it? And I think we're pretty much getting to uh, the end of the rope here. Next question is coming from Lex uh, Runhart. He's out of the Eurozone. Uh, let me see. Mr. Schiff, I have, I have a restaurant. Uh, does delivery... Um, Got a good business. He's got some physical gold. Um, basically, he wants to know where he should put his money. Look, I, you know, obviously, if you got some money in gold uh, and silver, then yeah, you should buy some more. You know, depending on how much you have. Uh, but you should also look at getting into uh, the mining stocks and getting into other inflation hedges. To the extent that your, you know, your business is still running well and you've got some profits, uh, you should talk to one of my reps at Euro Pacific Asset Management. Uh, you can go to europacificfunds.com and, and, and talk to us about ways that we can invest your money. Um, and if you need more gold and silver, you can get it from Ship Gold. Uh, next question is from Sami Hanish. Peter, what do you think of leveraged commodity ETFs, three times leverage, three times gold, silver? Look, I generally don't recommend these leverage investments, certainly not from a long-term buy and hold perspective. I mean, if you're a trader and you're just trying to maximize your potential gain on a day trade where you're in and out, uh, then these are really good trading vehicles. But what you don't want to do is just buy this and hold it. Because if you do, because of the interest that's accumulating on the debt, you can end up losing a lot of money uh, in these leveraged products. So again, I don't recommend them as a long-term investment, uh, but they can, be, they can be very effective for day traders, right? Because you can get a lot more bang for your buck uh, when you're trading these things. Next question is, um, I don't know, this doesn't have a real name, Hello World. 
uh, uh, from Indi in Indonesia? What do you think about India or India? What do you think about India's new sovereign gold bond announcement? Redeemable in the price of gold at maturity plus two and a half percent interest uh, per annum. You know, I hadn't heard about it until I read this question, but I like gold backed debt. And it seems to me uh, that India, you know, as far as sovereign credit, I think India is probably a pretty good credit risk. I mean, if you're going to lend your money to a government, a sovereign uh, with the power to tax, and what they don't have the power to do is inflate, because at least the only risk that you really have, I think, in a gold-backed note is default. You don't have to worry about inflation because they it doesn't matter how much they print. They have to give you back your gold, and you're getting 2.5% interest on gold. I mean, I'd much rather loan the Indian government money and get repaid at gold and get 2.5% than loan the U.S. government money at, like, 10 basis points or 50 basis points, whatever it is, and just get paid in paper and you have no idea what it's going to be worth. I mean, I have a much better idea on what gold is going to be worth uh, in five or 10 years than the U.S. dollar. So, yeah, I think I think it's a good idea. You know, I think to the extent that you want, uh, you know, government debt uh, and you want to get some interest on gold. Now, obviously, there is some counterparty risk, right? You're, you know, what if India defaults? You know, you lose your gold. But you're getting paid 2.5% interest, which will compound, right? If you get that every year, if it's a 10-year note, I mean, that's going to compound over 10 years. Uh, whereas if you store the gold yourself, you're getting no interest and you might have to pay some storage fees. Uh, so, you know, it could be worthwhile because, you know, people don't normally get uh, interest. And that's a real yield. I mean, you know, and whatever the appreciation of gold is, you're still going to get that. Right. If gold doubles in value or triples in value, you don't lose any of that because you you had the loan to India. You get all that. Plus, you get the two and a half percent coupon. I certainly wouldn't own all my gold by loaning it to the government of India, but certainly in a portfolio that could make sense. Uh, next question from Paul Heather. Peter, if you think Bitcoin is probable to fail. Why not put 1% of your portfolio in Bitcoin on the slim chance that it succeeds? Look, I hear this argument all the time, right? Okay, come on. What do you got to lose? Put 1% of your net worth in. All right. Well, I guess I could lose 1% of my net worth. I mean, I guess 1% I can handle. I mean, would I be broke if I lost 1% of my net worth? No. I mean, it's a pretty big number. Um, and I'd, if I'm going to gamble with it, I'd rather I'd rather put another 1% in gold stocks, to be honest with you, than, than Bitcoin. I mean, I know why people who own Bitcoin want everybody to put 1% of their net worth in it, because most people have none of their net worth in it. And if the whole world put 1% of their net worth in Bitcoin, given how small the market is, the price of Bitcoin would go way up. And that would certainly serve the interest of the people who own a bunch of Bitcoin who want to unload it, right? If they everybody else was buying it to put 1% in, they could get a lot of their money out. And I don't want to be the bag holder. Right? I am not going to buy into Bitcoin just on the slim chance that it might work uh, just to help somebody else get out. Because basically, I don't think it's going to work. The only thing I think is possible is that it could rally. Yes, Bitcoin could rally, but it's going to crash eventually, even if it rallies. But you know what? And I asked this question on, on my uh, uh, um, Twitter account. And, and, and again, this is a serious question for all you Bitcoiners out there that are listening to my podcasts. Think about this. Bitcoin has not rallied. Bitcoin is lower today 
than it was before anybody heard the word coronavirus, right? It's down. Yes, it's off the March lows. But remember, it collapsed in March. It went from 10,000 to like 3,700. Where is it now? 7,000. It's still down about 30%, right? With global pandemic, right? Stock markets crashing, recession, depression, Fed back at zero, massive money printing, massive QE, all the stuff that has happened that was supposed to send Bitcoin to the moon, and it hasn't gone there. So you got to ask yourself, if all this stuff has happened, all this good news for Bitcoin has come out and it hasn't caused Bitcoin to go up, well, what's going to cause it to go up? You got the halving coming now in a few weeks. Everybody's all the halving, the halving, the halving. Well, you have all these people buying Bitcoin to front run the halving, and it's still not going up. Even with this supposedly super bullish event that's about to happen, that's going to make Bitcoin even more scarce and make it even more valuable. So you throw in the anticipation of the halving and all this inflation and money printing and this chaos and collapse and all this stuff, yet it hasn't caused people to buy Bitcoin. Well, what will? If Bitcoin hasn't gone to 50,000 yet, when will it go? Never. Right? There's an old expression, too, in the market. If a stock doesn't go up on good news, then it's probably going down, right? If the good news won't make it go up, well, then imagine what happens when we get bad news, right? So Bitcoin has had all the opportunities. It's had everything going for it, even gold going up, making new highs, right? All with all the interest. And yet Bitcoin is still going down. So if the buyers haven't shown up yet, when are they going to show up? They're never going to show up. If they were going to show up, they'd already be there. And why are people selling? Obviously, there are some people buying, but it's not making the price go up because people are selling. Why? Why are people trying to get out now? Why, why aren't they just hodling and waiting for an even bigger move? Obviously, there are people that want out, even though all this great stuff is happening. So to me, I just think it's going to implode. I think the chart looks horrible. I think the odds of Bitcoin making a new high are slim. And it's not even worth putting 1% of my, my net worth in. Why? So I can throw away 1% of my net worth? There's, I have better things to do with my money. And, I, and, and the same advice. I don't think it's even worth it. I'd rather just you know buy a lottery ticket with 1% of my net worth, although I wouldn't do that either. Uh, but there are some speculative investments that I can make uh, that I'll make, but this is, this is not worth it. I don't think the upside potential is worth the downside risk in Bitcoin, not from here. Next question is from Chris Primer. I live in a state with an income tax on luxury goods, gold and silver. Should I bite the bullet and continue to buy or invest in mining stocks? Well, I would, number one, I would check. I'm not sure uh, what state you're in, but I would check to see if that luxury tax applies to all gold and silver. Because maybe it doesn't. I mean, maybe it doesn't apply to legal tender, right? If you buy junk silver, like U.S. coins, maybe it doesn't apply to that. If you buy, you know, U.S. coins that are, you know, are legal tender, you know, U.S. eagles, you know, the that made by the U.S. mint, Maybe the tax doesn't apply there. So I would check. Um, number two, I mean, maybe you can buy, you know, uh, if you have a vacation house or you have an out-of-state address, maybe you can buy from a different state that doesn't impose that tax. Uh, but if, in fact, there is a substantial tax on physical coins, even uh, legal tender coins, uh, depending on how high that tax is, yeah, that might be a reason 
to buy an ETF instead where there wouldn't be a tax. If you just bought like a GLD or an SLV, the tax would not apply. And obviously the tax would not apply if you made an investment in gold mining stocks, which right now I think, you know, given that the physical metal is trading at such a premium anyway. So not only would you pay the premium, but you would pay the tax. I think the gold stocks are at a big discount. I mean, gold stocks really have not moved uh, anywhere near what I think. So I think that between the, the cash, the physical and the stocks right now, I think the stocks are a better buy. I think wait for the stocks to double or triple and then take some of your gains off the table and then use those gains to buy more physical. That's that's kind of how I'm looking at it right now. And again, I think, you know, for people who want to get into the gold market, my gold fund, the Euro Pacific gold fund, I think is the best way to go. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously I'm biased because it's my fund, uh, but I hired the best manager, Adrian Day. I think he's the best. I mean, that's why I hired him. Uh, and I think his track record shows that he's the best. And there's not that many people who have even been doing this as long as Adrian. Uh, and uh, but, you know, check it out, you know, read the prospectus, go to EuroePacificFunds.com. Um, yeah, gold mining stocks are risky. They're riskier than the physical, for sure. They're very different types of investments. Uh, but again, you know, I don't think the risk reward is worth it in Bitcoin. I think the downside risk outweighs the upside potential. I think it's the opposite in mining stocks. I think the upside potential dwarfs the downside risk. Now, the downside risk is real. And if you can't afford it, then, you know, don't enter the casino. But if, you know, you can afford to lose money and you like these odds, and I love these odds, then, yeah, you know, put down some money and let's see what happens. Um, next question. Love your show. What's the best place to immigrate to financially in the next 10 to 20 years? You know, I don't know uh, what the best places are. I mean, obviously, there are places around the world that I think are in better shape. Uh, a lot of it might depend on uh, the languages you speak uh, and, and, and personally, you know, what you like, you know, about a culture and, and, and your lifestyle. I mean, I've been talking a lot about Puerto Rico. That's where I've moved to. Um, and you know, apart from the weather and the culture here that I like, uh, you know, the tax environment is extremely friendly and I am very, very concerned about higher taxes, uh, particularly higher taxes that result from inflation, which is the capital gains tax, which in many cases, uh, just converts, uh, no income to income, right? If I, if I buy something, let's say for a million dollars and the cost of living doubles and I sell it for $2 million. Well, I have twice as many dollars, but my standard of living isn't twice as high. If everything that I buy now costs me twice as much, I haven't made any money. I'm exactly even. I have twice as much money and everything I want to buy is twice as expensive. But if the government says, well, you doubled your money, we're going to take our cut in capital gains taxes. And who knows where that tax might be? Let's say it's 50%. Well, they take half that money. I, now I can't buy as much as I was able to buy before prices went up. So they're actually eating into my principal under the guise of taxing my gains. I didn't have a gain. I just stayed even with inflation. But now I'm not even because the government is taking uh, some of my principal. But by moving to Puerto Rico and having zero capital gains tax, I am able to avoid that problem. And I think that's going to be a huge problem for a lot of people. This is from, well, that was Victor Chan who asked that question. <clears throat> this is Hongzing Chang. Um, if you were to choose only one of the following, one which is best, U.S. real estate, uh, foreign stocks, or uh, the GDX? Well, first of all, I would choose my gold fund over the GDX, right? Because I think that Adrian will do a better job of picking stocks than just buying an index, right? I would rather try to buy the good stocks 
and avoid the bad stocks than just buy all the stocks. I think that Adrian will add a lot of value. So I think uh, the gold stocks. Now, again, it depends on your risk tolerance. I think the gold stocks will do a lot better than general you know, stocks that aren't gold stocks. But if I'm wrong, you could lose a lot in gold stocks. So I think uh, a, a, another investment could just be dividend paying foreign stocks that are not gold stocks, that are not as speculative. Uh, and so I think those could be more appropriate depending on the individual. But I think that that's a good inflation hedge. And for some people, uh, dividend paying foreign stocks could be a better way to go than gold stocks, or you can have a portfolio that includes both. And you maybe have more money in these dividend paying foreign stocks to get out of the dollar and get out of the U.S. and have a smaller amount in the riskier gold mining stocks that potentially could really return a lot of money. But I think U.S. real estate is going to be a lousy uh, investment. Right? I mean, I, the only way that people will make money in real estate is as debtors, right? Inflation could wipe out uh, the debt. But real estate in real terms is going to go down, and it could go way down. I mean, I already talked about in the short run, all of the, the lending is, is, is going away. People have been buying real estate with borrowed money. Well, you can't borrow as much money now to buy real estate. So the prices are going to come down. And in a recession, you have a lot of uh, houses that can't be sold. You know, I was watching, uh, I think it's Diana Ehrlich on CNBC is their real estate correspondent. And she was talking yesterday when these housing numbers came out. And she was talking about how everything is great. It's not like 2008. The housing market is going to come roaring back. And the reason that she said that the market is so strong is that, well, she said in 2008, there was all this supply. There was all these houses that we had built. And so we had this glut and that's why prices went down. And she's saying right now that, you know, there's no, there's a big shortage. Well, she has a short memory because there was a shortage leading up to 2008. I remember when I used to argue about the housing bubble with housing bulls, they would tell me there's no supply. There's no houses on the market. There's no houses for sale. And I would say, what do you mean there's no supply? Look around. Look at all these houses. Yes, they're not for sale now, but they're potentially for sale. People just don't want to sell them. Why would anybody want to sell a house? It keeps going up, right? Just borrow against it. But I said, all these homes represent potential supply that may not be on the market now, but it could be on the market soon. And then all of a sudden you have a glut. That's exactly what's about to happen all over again. Yes, there aren't a lot of homes for sale now, but fast forward three months, six months. A lot of homes that aren't for sale will be for sale, right? A lot of private equity funds that bought up a lot of real estate are going to want out of that real estate. They're not, they're not, they're not renting it. Maybe they're not, their tenants aren't paying. They're going to try to unload these properties. A lot of people who are unemployed who can't, you know, use their house as an ATM anymore, they're going to be you know, trying to sell uh, their house. I think you're going to have a lot of homes for sale <laughs> and, and there's not going to be a lot of qualified buyers. And of course, she thinks that home building, right, is going to boom, right, because there's not enough homes. No, there's too many homes. She just doesn't understand that. We overbuilt, right? We never even allowed the market to flush out after 2008. Home building is going to grind to a halt. You're not going to be able to build a home and sell it at more than your construction costs. There's going to be so many properties on the market that people can buy for a lot less than it costs you to build, even if you get the land for free. And I went over that before. So again, you have the real estate correspondent on CNBC completely oblivious to the reality of the real estate market. And it, again, it reminds me exactly 
of 2006, 2007, 2008, because the people were saying exactly the same thing back then as they're saying now. Nobody saw this coming. You can go back and see some of the debates I had on Fox or CNN or CNBC with realtors in 06 and 07. These guys were so clueless. They were just so wildly optimistic, even though it was obvious what was going to happen. They were still oblivious. And that's the case all over again. So unlike what she said, it's, it, it's not the opposite of 2008. It's exactly 2008, except worse. Next question is from Talk Liberty. Uh, this question is, if the dollar doesn't collapse and we get a repeat of 2008, will you rethink your beliefs? Well, look, uh, a repeat of 2008 in what sense? I mean, because in 2008, the dollar rallied initially and then sold off sharply. Gold sold off originally and then rallied. And the only reason that gold stopped rising and the dollar stopped falling was because the world was convinced that QE was temporary and that the Fed can unwind its balance sheet. So even if we have a repeat of 2008, I think that will validate me because what's going to happen is exactly what happened in 2008. The dollar is going to start to tank. Gold's going to take off. But since the Fed will be unable to convince anybody that it's worked and that it was temporary and that they're going to normalize interest rates and shrink their balance sheet, what will be different than 2008 is gold won't stop going up like it did in 2011. The dollar won't stop going down. I think the dollar is going to complete the collapse and gold is going to go through the roof, right? So I think we're going to have, it's going to happen again like 2008, except it's not going to have the same eventual outcome because the Fed is not going to, be able to fool everybody into thinking that it worked and that they could unwind uh, the, you know, the, the balance sheet and normalize rates. So the Fed is not going to succeed in reflating the bubble, it's going to succeed in destroying the dollar. And, and so that is going to happen. There's no doubt in my mind. Is the fact that other central banks are weakening their own currencies, is that delaying the day of reckoning for the dollar? Of course it is. Of course it is. But the dollar is still losing value. Look at the price of gold. The dollar is losing value. Even if it's losing less value than other currencies, it's still losing value. But the dollar is in the worst shape. I mean, it has that temporary bid in it because of liquidity and its status and this perception. But look, it lost that in 2008. It's going to lose it again. And there's not going to be any getting it back because there's nothing the Fed's going to be able to do to convince anybody that there's, there's an end game and an exit strategy. Meanwhile, what's already different than 2008, foreign central banks are getting out of dollars. Uh, they're not going to be buying. Uh, so the, the Fed is the only buyer. Remember, what, what also stopped the dollar from falling was the currency wars. People forget what happened in 2010, 2011, as the dollar was tanking. All these other central banks were deliberately trying to prevent the dollar from falling against their currencies. They're not going to do that again. This, a weak dollar is going to be welcome all over the emerging markets. They are getting killed by the strong dollar. The relief of a weak dollar will be extremely welcomed. Uh, and so there's going to be no uh, no no help for the dollar. It's going to keep falling. Next question is from Swaggy Bickford. How likely do you see a lot of major stock brokerages going under in this crisis? Hmm. Well, as far as major stock brokerage firms, probably not many, right? Because they're all getting bailout money. I do think a lot of smaller ones 
will go bankrupt. I mean, the industry has been consolidating and smaller and smaller firms have been going out of business. And that's because of uh, FINRA and the SEC and all the, the rules and regulations that have gotten prohibitively expensive since I first got into the business. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, government regulation and compliance with government regulation, which, as I said earlier in this uh, podcast, is going to now be even higher to incorporate what you have to do to protect your employees and customers from uh, COVID-19 and other uh, pandemics, right? Yes, I mean, I do expect to see more consolidation uh, in the industry. I think more and more smaller firms are going to fail uh, and the bigger firms will uh, benefit from those failures and continue to be uh, propped up uh, by by government money. So I, I don't think we're going to see the major firms fail, although it is possible that that one of the larger firms, I mean, who knows, right? Because uh, look, I mean, Bear Stearns went under, Lehman, but you know, I, I think the bigger threat is uh, to uh, the smaller uh, the smaller companies. Peter, this is from uh, the Somalia pirate, formerly known as Chris Brown. Okay, uh, will you be back on the Joe Rogan podcast anytime soon? Would love to see you there. Look, I'd love to do Joe's show again. I've done it three times. Uh, the thing about Joe's show is. You have to be in studio, so I have to be out in Southern California. I'm not doing a lot of traveling right now. Uh, I don't know if Joe is having any remote guests now with all the, you know, the social distancing. Maybe he's, you know, changing a little bit. I mean, I don't, uh, you know, listen to all the podcasts. I'm, you know, uh, but I know he's always wanted you to be in the studio. Um, and and so I don't know when I'm gonna be out in California, but I have reached out to him a couple of times. And, you know, haven't really uh, been invited on recently. Now, he has had me on three times, so it's not like he hasn't uh, had me on. I don't even know how many people have been on that many times. Uh, but I haven't been on in a while. It's been maybe a couple of years since my last uh, appearance. So certainly a lot of stuff has happened since I was on before. And I, you know, I think it would be great to go on. He's got a huge audience. So I obviously, uh, you know, like to, uh, you know, speak to a larger audience. His audience is much, much bigger than mine. And so I have a much uh, bigger a soapbox to stand on uh, when I'm talking, and especially now there's so much bad information that's out there uh, in the media. Uh, and so a lot of the people who listen to Joe Rogan are hearing all this crap and hearing all this nonsense. And it would be good if they heard uh, the other side of the story from me. So hopefully I will be back on the Rogan uh, podcast again uh, sometime, sometime soon. Uh, this is from Ricardo Rojas. Peter, is it realistic to create an electronic currency crypto that is actually backed by gold and silver. Why have you not pursued this? Look, technologically, it's very, very easy, right? The, the technology is there. In fact, a gold standard today, right, where uh, private banks or private companies issue their own currency backed by gold, where you issue a digital currency backed by gold, it is easier today than what they used to do when banks issued their own currency, paper currency, backed by physical gold in their vaults. It's very easy uh, to uh, issue a cryptocurrency backed by gold in your vault. So I think it would work beautifully, except for government. See, the government regulation is what makes it non-economic. And that's a reason why I haven't come up with a cryptocurrency backed by gold, is because I don't think I can make enough money doing it. To make the product legitimate, I don't think I could cover the compliance and regulatory costs and the risks. I mean, the risks are huge. I mean, you can go to jail for a long, long time if they end up getting you for money laundering. So I just think that, you know, it's only government. Of course, government doesn't want competition, right? Doesn't Government doesn't want to have to compete with sound money. 
and gold-backed cryptocurrencies would be sound money, and it would be you know the government couldn't compete with it. Um, it, they would out everybody would choose that over over dollars or euros. So that's one of the reasons that they have this regulatory barrier to prevent that type of competition. But what I am going to be doing eventually at my bank uh, is when I get all my approvals and again this stuff is taking so much longer than I thought. But Europe Pacific Bank will eventually have you know a really good program of gold-backed debit cards where it'll be a very efficient way uh, to immediately spend gold uh, directly using a, a, a debit card or even a, a, a secured credit card, uh, Visa or MasterCard, just go out and, and spend gold. And I will have a platform where bank customers, just like you know, if you have a, a bank account and your friend has an account at the same bank, you can just go online and transfer them some dollars if you want. doesn't cost you any money. Uh, I'll have it so people that have accounts at my bank, one depositor can transfer gold or silver to another depositor as easily as they can deposit or transfer dollars and euros. And that's going to happen. And my plan is to have uh, debit cards that are not only uh, you can spend your gold, you can spend dollars, you can spend euros, you can spend yen, you can spend pounds. You can change the spend on the card before you use it. So I'm going to create a very efficient uh, payment platform uh, for people to be able to choose which fiat currency they want to use. And if they don't want to use any fiat currencies, they want to use gold. I'm going I'm to make that happen in a way that's regulatory compliant, but it's just taken me a long time to get there. Uh, but eventually, eventually I will. And I'll let everybody know. I mean, right now, I mean, you know, it's not, we're not there yet. Next one is from Peter Dahman, Australian farmer here. Uh, he sells non-perishables. We are going to run out of stock in the next couple of months. Yeah, I mean, look, that's what I've been saying. Uh, a lot of a lot of businesses are going to start running out of stuff, especially when people are hoarding. A lot of people are buying a lot more stuff because they realize that this is coming. And yeah, I mean, I keep hearing all these people talking deflation, deflation, deflation. I mean, what are they, crazy? We're printing all this money and producing less stuff. Fewer people are on the job working. So we're producing fewer products. We're providing fewer services. Yet we're printing more money, right? That right. There's more money than ever that's being created, and that, by definition, is the inflation. But the reason that creating money causes prices to go up, the reason inflation makes prices go up, is because you have more money to bid up prices. But at the same time, if you have less stuff, if it's not more money chasing the same amount of stuff, if you have more ch money chasing a diminished supply of stuff, well, then prices are going up for two reasons. They're going up, one, because there's less supply, and they're going up, two, because the paper creates more demand. So prices are going to go through the roof. The fact that you got people out there worried about falling prices. Look, yeah, I know oil prices are down for now. I know if you want to fly, the ticket prices are down. You want to check into a hotel, like supposedly if they're open, you can get a good deal. Yeah, this is all temporary. All this is going to go away. The big move in prices is higher. Meanwhile, the price of stuff that people are actually buying right now is going up, and it's going to go up a lot faster. Next question from Nathan G. Love the Currency Wars video. Can we get a prequel that includes concepts of how an economy grows uh, and all that? Look, you know, yeah, that was a fun uh, to make. If you haven't seen the Star Wars uh, Currency Wars video, I mean, basically, it started out, I wanted to put up uh, this clip. Uh, that was me on the Cudlow show with Larry Cudlow, actually worried about QE, which is now not worried about it at all. Now that he's the economic advisor to the president and he actually has his ear when he was just a talk show host, 
He didn't like any of this. He was worried that America was going to become the next Argentina. But now that he's actually in a position to advise the president, he's given the exact opposite advice that he gave when he was hosting his talk show. He thinks QE is great now. He does. He, he wants us to be the next Argentina. But yeah, so if you haven't seen it, seen it. By the way, the, 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 the funniest part of that video was at the end. And we just came out with, we just put the end as a standalone video, uh, which was um, the Fed's ultimate weapon. So I just posted that on my YouTube channel too, if you haven't seen that. Um, next question. This is from Bill. God, I'm already over an hour. God, I realized I'd be doing this podcast so long. Uh, hi, Peter. How bad is uh, residential real estate going to crash? What's your best guess as to when the bottom? Uh, when should I about? Look, I don't know where the bottom is going to be. I know the prices are going to come down. Obviously, prices are going to come down uh, for housing. I already discussed that. Uh, so, uh, you just got to keep renting. I mean, you know, I don't know where the bottom is when I think we have one, I can discuss that, but I think it's premature to try to figure that out. Uh, but also, you know, all the markets are different. So to just say real estate is going to bottom at the same time, all over the world, all over the country, that's not going to happen. So, you know, markets are going to be different and some markets will bottom, uh, before others. And, uh, and, and some, you know, you know depending on, the construction costs of the place. I mean, you can always get a good deal, right? I mean, if you buy the piece of property under the right circumstance, you can get a great deal. You can buy something way below market if you're smart. So I think in a bad real estate market where there's not a lot of people who can get mortgages and people are in desperate situation, you'll be able to find good deals. Just make sure you buy a good deal. Just don't go out and pay some price just because somebody's offering it, right? Try to buy it for half of what they're trying to sell it for or less. And if you, you know you make enough real low ball offers, somebody's going to hit your bid. So I think it's going to be a good environment for people to get deals, right? Uh, but the overall market, who knows when that's going to bottom? But you don't have to wait for the market to bottom to buy your real estate. If you can get a really really good deal, and you can you know you could judge the value based on what it would cost to to build the property. If you could buy the property for a fraction of the replacement cost, and you get the land for nothing. You know, and you like the place and you want to live there, then, you know, you probably could get a good deal. And there's going to be good deals. Uh, uh, and I think they're going to get better uh, next year and the year after that, probably. The supply of good deals is probably going to go up. So you'll have more to choose from because you'll have more people in desperate situations uh, that are selling, uh, you know, at low prices. Um, next up is Drew. If U.S. hyperinflation is inevitable, why not pay with dollars that you still have? You can say Bitcoin has no base demand like gold and jewelry. Huseman, why not? Like, I don't know. If this guy's trying to ask me, why don't I buy Bitcoin if I think there's going to be hyperinflation? Look, Bitcoin can go to zero, even if there is hyperinflation. Because again, Bitcoin has no real value. It has value in the market because people want to buy it. But how do I know people are going to, want to buy it if there's hyperinflation? They may want to have nothing to do with it. Uh, I know they're going to buy gold. I mean, gold is going to have value as a commodity and as money, it's had value for thousands of years. Uh, people are not going to stop valuing gold. Now, can they stop valuing Bitcoin? Absolutely. Did anybody value Bitcoin 20 years ago? No, it didn't exist 20 years ago. Do people value it today? Yes. Why do they value it? Because they think it's going to go up. Is there any other reason they value it? No. Because can you do anything with it? No. Right. You can hold it and hope it goes up. And if it goes up, you can sell it to get more money. But if you stop hoping and you have a more realistic outlook as to the future, uh, then there's no reason to buy it. So, no, I don't think it matters. I, as I said earlier, 
Is it possible that some more fools can will buy Bitcoin and the price will go up again before it collapses? Yes, it's possible. But I think it's a long shot and it's not worth betting on. Here's a question from uh, Sweden, Robert in Stockholm. Hi, Peter. Greetings from Stockholm. Isn't buying land the best long-term investment? Well, look, it all depends on, you know, I mean, land. all land is not the same, right? I mean, and if you just buy vacant land, if there's no building on it, I mean, why is the land going to appreciate? I mean, you know, it depends on a lot of factors that are going on around that land, you know, that might make it more or less valuable in the future. But in the current, if you have a piece of property with nothing on it, you still have to pay property taxes, uh, but you're not generating any income. So you have a carrying cost to just hold on the land because uh, you got to pay, pay taxes on it. Um, but look, you know, farmland or, you know, obviously, you know, land can be valuable if there's minerals that you can have rights to or something like that. But look, you know, over time, if you buy land right and you develop it and you ha you can get income off of it. But I do think that in the United States in particular, uh, real estate is going to be a bad investment because I think America is going to be a poorer country. And so by definition, real estate in America is going to be less valuable in absolute terms than it is now. If you can find countries that are poorer, right, that are going to become richer, then their real estate is probably going to go up in value as you have more affluent people, uh, you know, but, you know, renting there or, you know, buying homes there or, uh, you know, transacting in, 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 in commerce there. Uh, so you can make money in it. But is it going to be the best investment right now? I don't think so. I think there's a lot of overpriced real estate in the world, uh, particularly on the residential side. Uh, I think that, you know, real estate bubbles have kind of been universal with artificially low interest rates. Uh, but once the markets come crashing down, yeah, I think there could be some great opportunities uh, in that market. Um, this is, uh, first name 98, last name 98. I don't know. Uh, hi, Peter, please explain your view versus dense deflation theory. Look, Harry Dent, I've been debating Dent for a long time and I don't have enough time. I'm already an hour, 11 minutes into this podcast. So I can't get into all of Harry Dent's, uh, uh, views, but Dent and I agree on a lot of stuff, including Puerto Rico, because we both live here. Uh, and we both think the U.S. economy is a disaster and we're in a lot of debt and there's going to be a crisis. The difference is uh, Harry thinks that the dollar is going to soar and gold is going to fall. And I think it's the opposite. I think gold is going to soar and the dollar is going to crash. See, what Harry believes is all the debt is going to be defaulted on. See, he believes the government's not going to pay its bills. The government's going to tell the bondholders, you can't have your money. We default. Harry thinks the... The government is going to tell people on Social Security, we're out of money. You can't have any benefits. The government's going to tell uh, government retirees, we can't pay your pensions, right? The government's going to just default on all of its obligations, right? Funded or unfunded. And they're going to turn off the printing presses. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they're going to run the printing presses until they run out of ink, right? Until, I, they're going to print the dollar until it collapses. See, Harry Dent still thinks we're on a gold standard. He expects what happened in the 1930s to happen again. It's not going to happen. We don't have real money anymore. The Fed is not constrained the way it was back then. They can just keep on printing. There's no discipline whatsoever. So they will kick the can down the road as long as they can kick it. Why make a difficult choice when you could just print money instead? Why be honest in default when you can lie and print? So I don't think 
that Harry is right. And it doesn't make sense to me. If Harry agrees that the U.S. is a disaster, it's hopelessly in debt, it's bankrupt, then why would you want to own their their dollars, the liabilities of the U.S. government? Why would you want to own liabilities of a bankrupt nation, the world's biggest debtor? You want you want to put all your money in their notes. I don't want anything to do with it. I think if the U.S. is in as bad a shape as Dent thinks it is, the last place you'd want to be is in U.S. currency. You'd want to be as far away from U.S. currency as possible, and the best alternative is gold. Yet he's telling people that gold's going down. But the other thing is about Harry Dent. Harry agrees, though, that eventually, after the dollar goes way up, then it will crash, we'll have hyperinflation, and gold will go way up. So if Harry Dent is right and I'm right and you buy gold, you win, right? Even, even if Harry is right and the dollar goes up first and gold goes down first, as long as you don't sell your gold, you'll be fine because Harry agrees with me and eventually gold's going to go way up. The problem is what if I'm right and Harry's wrong and we never get that big dollar rally and you've got all your money in dollars hoping for a big rally so you can buy gold cheap and Harry's wrong and I'm right, well, then you're wiped out. Right. So if you follow Harry Dent's advice and I turn out to be right, you're broke. But if you follow my advice and Harry Dent turns out to be uh, uh, right, then you're not broke. You're still fine. So regardless of who's right, it makes sense to follow my advice and, 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 and be in gold and, 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 and not and not dollars. Farah Camille's question. Peter, the Fed dropped rates close to zero in 08 and we're able to raise them again. Why will it be different this time? It's actually a pretty good question, and I sort of answered it, but I'm going to get to it again. Well, first of all, think about this for a second. They were able to raise rates. Not really. How long did they wait? The Fed cut rates to zero in 2009. They didn't raise them from zero until December of 2015. So you're talking about what over six years that rates were stuck at zero. So I wouldn't really say that they were able to raise rates when they were at zero for six years. Then they didn't even raise them again. So they didn't even go to a half a percent until December of 2016. So it took them another year to, to ratchet rates up another quarter point. So now you're over seven years and you're still at a half a percent. Then we got the election of Donald Trump. And it was only because of Trump and all that enthusiasm and the big tax cuts that were even able to get rates up to two and a half, which still doesn't count because they never came close to normal. So they weren't able to raise rates after 2008. That's the point. They couldn't do it. That's why they started cutting rates before the coronavirus. We had already had three rate cuts before the coronavirus, and then they had to go all the way to zero. Once the coronavirus came down and look how quickly we were back at zero. Now, if it took six years, seven years to get off of zero last time, it's going to take way longer this time because we'll have more debt this time. Right. So if it took six years before, what's going to take 12 years, 15 years? Of course, long before then, we'd have another recession, assuming we ever get out of this one. So based on the fact that they couldn't normalize rates after 2008, that, that shows you that they're never going to do it now. It's not like they succeeded then. And I'm and it's like, why do I think they're going to fail now? They failed then. So I know they're going to fail again because if they failed before when it should have been easier because there was less debt, they're certainly going to fail now. And if they couldn't shrink the balance sheet when it was $4.5 trillion, 
How are they going to shrink it when it's 10 trillion or wherever the hell it's going to go? So the Fed has already proved me right. I was the one that said from the beginning they would never be able to normalize rates. They would never be able to shrink their balance sheet back down to where it was. And I was right. I was right back then, and I'm right now. This is Stacy Meyer. If you already own gold and anti-dollar investments, what suggestions do you have for money you want on the sidelines? Well, look, look, I think your money on the sidelines should be mainly in, in gold because that's real money. But look, if you want to have cash because, you know, say you live in America and you want to have some expenses, you want to have some emergency cash uh, for your rent, which is an obligation. If you have a rent, right, your rent is in dollars. Uh, so it doesn't matter how much inflation there is, right? The landlord can't raise your rent until your lease is up. And maybe then he can't, depending on the terms. But yeah, you know, if just you want to keep money on the sidelines for uh, emergencies to, to meet your overhead, then keep some cash. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's what you got to do. And if you're in uh, Europe, you got to keep euros. If you're in Japan, you keep yen because you, that, that's your short term money. But any longer term expenses or obligations that I want to meet, I would want to have gold to meet them or have silver to meet them because there you have to worry about inflation, expenses that you're not going to incur for three years or five years. I mean, who knows how much more expensive things are going to be? Well, if you have gold and silver, well, you'll be able to afford them because I think the price of gold and silver will rise more than the prices of other consumer goods uh, that you would be buying with your gold and silver. Peter, I have a personal question. How do you cope with your anger about what the U.S. government did to your dad? I would be angry and vengeful. Well, look, I mean, Look, my dad's been fighting the the uh, government his entire life, so it's something that I grew up with, right? And my my dad was in and out of prison uh, since I was a senior in high school, and so it's it's something that I've had a long time uh, to to come to terms with. Uh, and um, and so, I mean, what am I going to do for revenge? How am I going to take revenge? I mean, I'm I mean, I'm not paying taxes now, basically, because I'm living in Puerto Rico. I mean, you want to look at that as some type of revenge. Uh, I'm educating the public. I mean, you know, I'm I'm telling the truth. I'm helping to keep my father's legacy alive. Uh, you know, uh, his website is still up, paynoincometax.com. People can check it out. I mean, I keep that going. I, I, I sell some of his books. I don't advocate that people uh, take on the government like he did. I don't advocate uh, that people uh, defy the IRS and stop paying income taxes. Uh, you know, but I do think people should be familiar with his writings and, and why he came to the conclusions that he did. Uh, but yes, I mean, I am upset uh, that he died in prison the way he did and that the government uh, did, you know, our government was so vindictive and so vengeful against an elderly man, an 87 year old man, uh, forcing him to die in prison uh, when he could have died, uh, you know, with his family. Uh, he wasn't a violent man. I mean, he had no criminal intent. Everything my father did, uh, he did because it was the right thing to do. And it wasn't because he was motivated uh, for financial gain personally. He was always motivated uh, by trying to help his country and trying to do what was right uh, for, as an American, as a patriot. Uh, and so I think the government should have uh, shown a little bit more sympathy. And my father did serve in the military. Uh, he was in the uh, Korean War. He, he, he didn't fight. I'm not saying that he was on the battlefield, but he was he was in the army. Um, and, and so, he you know, the government owes him some, that. And of course, you know, they they should have given him some health care. I mean, you everybody who wants government health care. Look, my dad died of uh, of uh, lung cancer, but it started as skin cancer. And the only reason it got to his lungs is because it was never treated. 
right? So the so my dad was in the government hospital. He got cancer and they didn't even notice. I mean, he's surrounded by supposed physicians. He's in this facility because of the medical care and he got no medical care whatsoever. They just let him die. And that's what happens when government is in charge of healthcare. They just let you die. And that's uh, what happened to my father. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm upset about it, but I mean, I mean, there's nothing really, I'm not, you know, I'm not leading a violent revolution. I'm not, you know, against the government. Uh, but I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing what I can to keep my dad's memory alive and to, uh, spread his values and, 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 and everything that I know really about economics, about the constitution and America, all that I, I owe to my dad. I mean, my dad put me on the right path. I mean, yeah, I went and I, once I was on that path, I went and learned some stuff on my own, but my father is the reason that I was on that path. And I've done the same thing with my son. I mean, my son, Spencer, I, I know my dad would be very proud of Spencer if he was still still alive. He didn't get to spend much time with Spencer, unfortunately. I know a lot of uh, my followers. Are now my son, he's got more than uh, 6,000 followers on his um, uh, uh, Twitter account. But he's very well read in Austrian economics. I mean, he's, you know, I put him on the right path, uh, but then he ran down that path, I think, even uh, further than I did. I think my son, at his age, now 17, knows a lot more about economics, a lot more about money and finance than I knew when I was 17. Uh, and, and so my dad would be glad. And, and, and I, you know, continued that tradition. I helped to uh, educate my son. And, I'm, you know, I have younger children now, and I'll try to, uh, you know, impart those ideas um, on them. And, uh, you know, so I'm more honoring my dad than, than, than trying to, you know, be vengeful or angry about it. Uh, anyway, next question is Sidraf. Strickonnell, um, why do you never talk about India, which is the largest importer of gold, gold jewelry? Uh, yeah, you know, look, I don't talk about a lot of specific emerging markets. I mean, I know I talk China a little bit more. I mean, China is kind of like uh, a bigger, you know, topic. But look, India, you know, is the world's largest democracy. And as like all democracies, its problem is too much government, right? I mean, India hasn't uh, dodged that bullet. But look, I, you know, I think I'm optimistic on, on India. I have some Indian investments myself. Uh, it's generally the market is hard to invest in. I mean, so the stocks that you generally buy in India are trading in London or they trade in Singapore. It's hard for foreigners to make direct investments there. So you end up going, uh, you know, through uh, other, other exchanges. Um, but yeah, I do think that when the dollar collapses and uh, the emerging markets are no longer supporting the United States, I think that you're going to see uh, a significant uh, uh, improvement in, in India, you know, I mean, so yeah, I mean, I just don't, I don't get into a lot of the, those individual markets. I'm not sure how many people are listening to my podcast in India. I know I have an Indian audience out there. I know that I generally am more focused on North America and the United States because I mean, that's where I live and that's where the majority of my audience is. Uh, and that's where the majority of my clients are. But yes, I know I have an audience that's outside the U S I know I have an audience I have investors that are outside the U.S., but I do think that the most important economy to understand is the American economy. I think we're certainly uh, the, the, the elephant in the living room that people have to recognize uh, that we're here and, and what we actually mean. I mean, there's a, there's, you know, we, we are going to have the biggest impact, you know, whether you think it's a positive or negative impact. I mean, I think the U.S. is exerting a negative uh, force now on the global economy because the world has to support America. The world has to loan us money and supply us with goods. And so there's a cost to doing that. 
And I also think that having the dollar as the reserve currency, we are basically screwing up the monetary policies all over the world. I think a lot of these monetary mistakes are being made because of us. It's because they're trying to, uh, you know, uh, continue a system that is unsustainable and non-viable. Uh, so I think it's important for people all around the world to understand the U.S. and the U.S. market and to avoid investing here. Like a lot of people think, oh, yeah, you want to invest here. And in fact, obviously, over the last decade, anybody from around the world, if they invested in the U.S. stock market, they did way better than having invested in their local markets. That's all going to change, I think. And I think that people who are living outside the United States, to the extent that they have money invested here, need to sell. And they need to invest more outside the United States, maybe in their own local uh, economies uh, than in, in, in America. Victor Claudio. What do you think the economic consequences will be for Puerto Rico? Uh, what does Puerto Rico look like? Uh, I'm concerned about the situation unfolding. Look, look Puerto Rico is going to face a lot of the same problems as the states. But I think Puerto Rico has one thing going for it that the states don't. And that's it's not a state. It's a territory. We don't have the federal income tax. That's a huge advantage. Uh, so I think that, you know, Puerto Rico can come out of this in a great, great position. And hopefully it will. And I'm doing whatever I can uh, in a small way uh, to help Puerto Rico. I mean, yes, Puerto Rico has helped me uh, by allowing me to live here and by giving me such a favorable tax deal. Uh, and, you know, and it's a wonderful environment to live and to raise a family. So I'm appreciative of that. And uh, I'm doing my part to help Puerto Rico uh, by starting businesses here and employing people here and giving to charities here and, and doing everything I can to encourage more people to move here. So I think relative to the rest of the United States, I mean, Puerto Rico is in a much better position uh, than just about any state. Now, whether it's the best place to be in the world, I don't know. But for me and for a lot of Americans, I think it's probably the best place to be. Uh, given you know the, the deal we have with the IRS, because if you go anyplace else, the IRS is going to come after you. Uh, they'll leave you alone, pretty much, if, if you're in Puerto Rico. Peter, now that the Fed has an infinite bid in place, do you think they'll be able to keep corporate bonds and treasuries from imploding in nominal terms? Sure. I mean, if they if they are willing to print the dollar into oblivion, if they never turn off the presses, then yes, they can prevent the nominal price of bonds from going down. In fact, that's why prices haven't gone down already. It's all because of the Fed. If the Fed was buying more bonds, the prices would have already gone down. They would have crashed. Um, so yes, but it doesn't do you any good. If the Fed is creating inflation to prop up the bond market, and they're just keeping the nominal bond prices up, but the real value of those bonds is imploding, and you can't buy as much when you get your interest or you can't buy as much when you get your principal back, then it doesn't make a difference. See, it's only now where the dollar hasn't crashed that the Fed can keep printing money and, 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 and making a real impact on the bond market. But once the dollar starts to crash, then the Fed loses its effectiveness because what good is it to have a bond where the dollar is crashed? Because all the bond is, is an obligation to pay dollars. And so if the bond hasn't crashed, but the dollars have, then that's the same thing as the bond crashing. And eventually, people are going to figure that out. They haven't figured it out yet, but, but they will. Uh, one question, are the, e uh, are the ETF gold mining stocks lagging a lot more than the other gold stocks? Why are the ETFs? You know why? Because it's the bigger stocks, right, that, that, are, that, are, that, they're, that anybody's buying. Again, a lot of it has to do with coronavirus. People are worried about mines shutting down, not being productive. So I think the money that is flowing into the sector 
is flowing into the Newmonts and, and the Barracks and the Franco Nevadas. And so uh, that's why those stocks are making new highs. I think the indexes are being weighed down by a lot of the smaller companies uh, that are in those index or mid-tier companies. But again, I do expect those companies to make much bigger moves. But rather than playing the indexes, I think you should hire a professional uh, like Adrian Day and get into my gold fund, the Euro-Pacific gold fund, which I've talked about. Uh, and you can get this prospectus and read about it on our website, europacificfunds.com, or you can talk to the Euro-Pacific Capital Brokers uh, about my mutual fund. They'll talk to you about it, answer your questions, and uh, make sure you're suitable before you invest. This one is from Colton Harris Moore. Would you speak about the weakness of companies today regarding debt? And this is the final question. I've, I, these are all the ones that I have written down. So anyway, yes. I mean, look, obviously I've been speaking on this podcast uh, repeatedly about how weak U.S. companies are precisely because of all of the debt that they have. That's what has weakened them. You see, if you have a strong balance sheet, if you have a lot of assets and not a lot of debt, then you're strong, right? Then you can weather a strong storm. You have staying power, right? You can go weeks, months, maybe years with less revenue because you, right? I mean, that's why they call it a rainy day fund, right? You are stronger as a family if you have a rainy day fund because when it rains, you, you have a fund to rely on. If you don't have a rainy day fund and you're just praying that it never rains, right? You're not strong. You're in a very, very weak position. And all you can do is hope that nothing bad happens, right? It'd be like, what if somebody had no fire insurance, right? And they just hope the house doesn't burn down. They have no auto insurance. They just hope they don't have an accident, right? They have no life insurance. Guy doesn't have any insurance for his wife and the kid just hopes he doesn't get, he doesn't die, right? I mean, you can live on hope, but you're not strong, when your, your whole life is based on hoping nothing goes wrong. Because then if it's something does go wrong, well, then you're in a very weak financial position. That's the United States. We've been in a weak position. I get tired every time I hear Trump keep talking about this booming economy, how we had the strongest economy ever before the virus. The virus proves just how weak the economy was. It wasn't strong enough to deal with this virus. If we had a truly strong economy, where our businesses had savings, our families had savings, this wouldn't be a problem. What's making it a problem is the debt, the fact that everybody was levered up. Look, all the states now, this is a big issue. The states are broke. Why are the states broke? They got broke in supposedly a good economy. The municipalities, all of these families who have run out of money, right? Doesn't that mean that the economy was weak? Because that's now, that's why they've run out of money. If we had a strong economy, They'd have plenty of money in reserve. They don't. It was a bubble. It was an illusion. It was a mirage. And the coronavirus helped, uh, you know, blow that mirage away. And now people can see what was actually there. Although most people are still oblivious. Again, I've been saying people can't see the bubble for the pin. They still think we had a strong economy. Oh, if it only wasn't for this coronavirus, everything would be fine. No, it wouldn't be, because if it wasn't the coronavirus, something else bad would have happened. You know, look, they keep talking about how this is this only happens every 100 years, a 100-year flood. They said the same thing 10, 12 years ago about the financial crisis. They said the same thing 10 years earlier about 9-11 or the dot-com bubble. It seems like every 10 years, something that's not supposed to happen for 100 years happens, right? So bad things happen, and you have to anticipate 
bad things happening. If you don't anticipate bad things happening, then you're in trouble. Who was I think was it was it Benjamin Franklin that I think one of his quotes was those who uh, uh, fail to plan plan to fail, and that's what we did, right? We failed to plan. We didn't plan ahead. We didn't pay down our debt. We didn't build up our savings. So we set ourselves up for disaster. That's what I've been saying from the beginning. You know, a lot of people are, you know, might want to say, or, you know, my son's, you know, Spencer says to me, but dad, you know, the coronavirus, you know, you, you can't take credit for anything that's happening now because, you know, it's all because of the coronavirus. It's not because of the coronavirus. The coronavirus is not the problem. It's a problem. It's certainly a big problem. I didn't anticipate this pandemic, but I knew that the next time there was an economic downturn, for whatever reason, the Fed would go back to QE. The Fed would go back to zero. All that has happened. The economy was vulnerable just the way I said it was. And it is reacting. And the Fed is doing exactly what I predicted they would do. Now, am I out there saying, oh, I told you so, I told you so, I'm right about everything? No, right? When the dollar finally crashes, which it will, right? When inflation runs rampant, which it will, when the price of gold, you know, explodes to new highs, when all the things that I have been predicting come true, well, then maybe I'll, I'll say I told you so and take a, a, a victory lap, although it's going to be a, a shallow victory because things are going to be pretty bad. I don't want to really, you know, celebrate uh, how bad things are going to get. But what people who are listening to me need to do is don't wait for that. Don't wait until every single prediction I've made has come true to recognize that what I'm saying is going to come true. What you have to realize is enough of what I have said has already come to pass for the reasons that I said it would happen. And it doesn't matter about the coronavirus. It doesn't matter about the pin. What matters is the bubble. The pin could be anything. The fact is so much of what I have said has already happened. And so much of what the mainstream has said has already proven wrong. Right. So you have all the people at the Fed and all the people at the big banks and all the big economists. They have been so wrong about so much. Yes, the stock market has gone up during that time. Who cares? It didn't go up for the reasons that they thought it went up because of inflation. It went up because we had a bubble. Right. So don't confuse that with these guys being wrong about what they thought about Fed policy or government policy and whether it would be effective or not. They were wrong about that. I was right about that. And ultimately, the financial markets are going to reflect the fact that I was right as well. And I think the people who have been following my investment advice are going to be the ones that end up on top. And so if you haven't already done so, what are you waiting for? You've got a perfect opportunity to get into gold, uh, to get into foreign stocks, and to get out of the dollar. Thank you.